Welcome to the Good Energy Project with Lou Connor, a surprisingly hopeful and upbeat show about economics, climate change, and our future on planet Earth. Kia ora, this is the Good Energy Project. Today I'm in Otahuhu in Auckland at the house of Max Harris. We're sitting in his living room with snacks and tea. I mentioned in my last podcast that the average age of my guests so far is quite high. So today I'm very excited to be talking to someone a little bit younger. How old are you? 35. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I can maybe move even younger after this. <laughs> <laughs> There's many things I could say to introduce Max. He was born in Wellington. He's a lawyer and an activist. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He won a very prestigious fellowship from Oxford University to spend seven years, I think it was seven, on a research project and chose to focus on Aotearoa New Zealand. His research culminated in him writing an excellent book called The New Zealand Project. It's about rediscovering New Zealand's lost direction and establishing a new foundation for our economic system and culture based on the values of care, community and creativity. He had some really interesting ideas in the role of government in all of that. So he wrote the book about seven or eight years ago, so I'm looking forward to hearing what he's been up to since and how his thinking has developed. Max is obviously very smart, but what I admire most about him is his optimism about who we are as people and what we could be. He seems to be able to maintain a lack of cynicism while facing up to the stark truths of the world. He speaks up for things like care and kindness, which I think can be hard and can be obscured by intellectual debate. One extraordinary thing about Max is that he almost died. When he was 26, he collapsed with heart pains and was rushed to the hospital and discovered that he had a life-threatening aortic aneurysm caused by an underlying health condition. I think this close encounter with death has sharpened his passion and added urgency to his work. So, hi, Max. Thanks for having me here. No, thanks for... Uh, being keen to talk. Mm. Um, so I have a couple of questions that I like to begin with. Yeah. Uh, the first one is, what absorbed your energy when you were a little child? Like, do mm. you remember? And what fascinated yeah. you? That's a great question. How old do you uh, do you mean by a little Maybe child? Like five. Five. Can you remember? Um, I remember being on, you know, in the playground when I was five. That's one of the memories I have. We actually went overseas for a little bit uh, to China, uh-huh. and I don't have that many memories of that time. I guess a few years later, I remember being really into sports in oh, quite okay. a um, quite a nerdy way. Often, like collecting the score of like our rugby games and looking at all the numbers around cricket games that were played and watching a lot of rugby league and cricket Mm. and rugby that's one thing I remember but there were probably lots of other things one other thing was I have a twin brother and I think when we were about eight or nine we got an old kind of camera that our granddad 
head after he passed away and we started making movies and we oh, were cool. really uh, really into making short movies so that was something else did yeah. like what about uh the first one we made was called angry assassination oh, <laughs> and wow. it was um yeah it was about kind of mysterious deaths and were you playing were you acting in these movies as well yeah yeah my sister was the main my younger sister was the main character in this one but mm-hmm. I was like a newsreader oh wow in this um and we also tried to remake all of Lord of the Rings um when that came out oh um, wow and yeah made lots of ridiculous uh but fun movies and so yeah I was also into watching movies I remember mm. that yeah do you do you remember what you loved about it um, I really wanted to be a screenwriter. I really wanted to be a scriptwriter. I liked uh, yeah, writing back then, but I also really liked kind of pairing music with images. I yeah. always remember being interested in that. And mm. yeah, we used to this really lo-fi thing of like getting a discman and playing music through headphones that we'd put next to the camera, but getting the music kind of alongside the images I remember yeah, okay. was something that I was yeah, interested cool. in yeah hmm. my next question is uh do you remember when you first became aware of money and how did you feel about it yeah that's a good question too um probably not like I probably don't remember like the very first moment I think I have some early memory of playing Monopoly we used to play like lots of board games and mm thinking about the plastic money and I'm probably projecting back but thinking about the power of like having that money on a monopoly playing board mm. um one other thing I remember is we used to get I think it was one dollar at first from our parents on Sundays to go down to the dairy my brother and sister and I used to kind of compare what we would get and you know I guess I guess there was a sense of like some limits on what we could get mm. actually I do remember opening a bank account and saving up money and my brother saving like a small amount of money and then feeling unfair like uh, (laughs) feeling some sense of unfairness um but yeah I I guess I was relatively I think we were relatively lucky growing up that I do remember money being talked about but the lack of money wasn't like a an intense struggle for us Mm, and mm. and, uh, yeah you kind of were a little bit aware of its power or its scarcity yeah Mm. yeah something like that yeah and my next question is about climate change and if you remember becoming aware of climate change and how that's affected you. Yeah, I was. I went to a really great primary school called Clyde Key School in Wellington and it was really creative and I had an amazing teacher, like the best teacher I think I had called John McDougall. And I remember that he got us all to do a project on erosion and... Mm. Um, I don't know that he used the words climate change, but we traveled out to Carpeti, I think it was, as a primary school class. Mm. And we kind of looked at the sea and I think there was like an initial kind of sea wall. And there was definitely some sense that the ground was being affected by mm. some changes in the environment. Mm. And I also remember watching An Inconvenient Truth, but that was quite a bit later. Um, I remember that having quite an impact on me the Al Gore movie about climate change like were you at university or I think if I remember right it was just between when I left school and when I started Mm. at university Mm. and I moved up to Auckland and I think I yeah went to go see it 
like I moved up in 2006, the start of 2006. And so I think it was around then. Um, and yeah, I remember that having a strong impression on me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How did you feel about it? Um, probably uh, nothing groundbreaking or startling, just that I remember like that, that sense of like threat from uh, this kind of major shifts across the world and mm. yeah probably just have like the image in my head of you know kind of melting ice and mm. um mm. i also do remember actually like really um being interested in disaster movies as a kid okay. and when i was watching lots of movies i guess it was the era of these big disaster movies like deep impact i remember mm-hmm. going to see that movie and movies like volcano and i think it's no coincidence that yeah during that time we were starting to see these kind of apocalyptic mm. movies mm. and so i do remember thinking about that happening mm. to us yeah. yeah can you tell me a bit about how you happened to get the all souls fellowship and yeah. and also you wrote in your book about the time when you realized that you had this health condition yeah so yeah i was really lucky lots of privileges involved with this but I got a scholarship to go study at Oxford uh, studied for two years postgraduate study after I'd done a little bit of work I studied law and public policy and then yeah um, actually the sort of health issue came up first and then the fellowship came up Mm. and so I'll just touch on that Yeah. yeah I was in New York so at the end of my public policy study, you um, had to do an internship and I arranged to work at the UN, the UN Development Programme with Helen Clark, which was a really, mm. really interesting job. But yeah, one weekend I had actually been having these ch- chest pains. I'd been having these chest pains and I fainted in the apartment that I was in and mm. was really lucky. This doctor friend of mine had told me a few months earlier that like I should ask about a particular condition and I actually got kind of worried in that moment mm. about yeah, having this heart-related condition. In the end, I didn't have that condition, but I had something similar. And yeah, I found out then that I had this quite rare condition called Lowy's Dietz syndrome, mm. uh, which has lots of symptoms and implications, but g- generally it's like a connective tissue condition, right. which can mean that your blood vessels tear more quickly than ordinary people. And yeah, I also at that time yeah had a an aortic aneurysm. Uh, so it's my very extreme. Isn't it was yeah. quite extreme, and actually, unfortunately, at the, the start of this year, I had another aortic oh, no, issue you? arise, oh, which comes gosh. out of the condition. Um, mm. But lucky that as in uh, as when it first came up, like when I actually went and had surgery in the UK, um, mm. the surgery I had here was great, and mm. I'm feeling well now. But at least one positive that came out of that for me was it meant that I had to stay longer in the UK and Mm. while I was waiting for surgery there was an exam which I would not have taken otherwise because I had a a flight booked to leave the UK but because I had to have the surgery and stay around I sat this exam at All Souls College and yeah they pick between one and three people from the people who sit this exam and it's a kind of wild exam where you do exam papers for two days and oh, wow. um, constantly <laughs> uh, almost it's like uh four three-hour papers wow. um yeah. and they're sort of uh, two specialist papers where you pick a subject and then two very general papers where mm. they ask you kind of weird and wacky questions like one of the questions my year was essentially discuss death and I wrote about kind of being That's close con- to death yeah quite convenient yeah in a way. <laughs> anyway I didn't really 
think I would pass that exam and honestly was like, oh, I'll give this a shot while I'm waiting for my surgery. But yeah, I got an interview. So they, they interview a few people out of the exam and then thought the interview went terribly. I remember okay. uh, but then got told, yeah, I was offered the fellowship, to, mm. which was to do any kind of research for seven years. Just and completely open. Any Yeah, pretty much any kind of research that you want to do. Has anyone from New Zealand ever won that? before or since um i don't actually know the answer to that <laughs> um i would guess that someone from new zealand has hmm. won it before but i'm not actually sure mm. um they're definitely australians uh, mm. not since as far as i'm aware because mm. i do know the, the people that have gotten it since yeah no i was really lucky and like you said one of the things i really wanted to look at was new zealand politics so it's, it's not the only thing i did in that time but it was yeah. kind of the first project that i wanted to work on and so yeah i spent maybe like the first three years or so working on this book the new zealand right, project yeah. yeah what was it that made you want to do that um a few things i think one was just keeping a connection to being back here like mm. my plan had been to come back mm. and i think i thought uh you know if i if i do work on new zealand i'll be able to travel back and it's a way for me to stay committed to and connected to mm. aotearoa and yeah and then uh, was lucky to meet some other New Zealanders over there, including Andrew Dean, who we were just talking oh, yeah. about. And those people were still interested in New Zealand. And yeah, I, like I said in the book as well, I, I guess I felt like a bit of a debt to this country. I did travel around a little bit when I was younger, but I feel like so much of my education happened here and mm. felt very grateful for that. And I also think there's a lot that's unique about this country and that this country can build uniquely so I wanted to contribute to that mm. conversation yeah and what how did you go about it like what was the process yeah so yeah I guess I my, my friend Andrew Dean had been writing a short book and I had been in conversation with him about that book quite mm. a bit um, in fact, I think I, I was reading the draft of that book in New York when I oh, uh, around the time that I had that fainting episode oh right so this that, is ruth roger and me that's Debts right and legacies. yeah it's an excellent book by andrew dean mm. about kind of growing up in the legacy of the 1980s we can come back to it but that was one thing that made me interested in contributing to the conversation um mm. but in terms of the process yeah i yeah i put together like a rough book proposal i think and met with a couple of publishers and eventually had some really good conversations with Bridger Williams books and mm. they were keen to support it, which was great. I got some funding, some extra New Zealand based legal funding to travel to Scandinavia and also to come back home. And then I thought oh. in that period about the structure of it. So I really wanted to write an interconnected story about different aspects of our politics mm. that covered like environment and economy and aspects of society and so one one feature of it was that it was strongly grounded in interviews and uh, yeah. I I know at that time I also decided I, I I wanted to interview some people that had been really inspiring to me so people mm. like Moana Jackson and Kim mm. Workman and Jane Kelsey mm. um, but also people that I hadn't yet met but yeah, whose writing I'd been mm. really interested in. So people like yeah, Mickey Hager or Susan St. John. Mm -hmm. um, there were a few others. I've just been reading it. I'm quite a slow reader, but I've been really enjoying the focus on values. And mm. you talk about how 
especially in the 1980s, there was sort of like a draining of values from mm. public life mm. and how you, you want to reestablish, and especially the values of care, community and creativity. Mm. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about that? What do you think is important about that? Yeah, I think this was a theme that especially came out of those interviews. I noticed that when people were searching for what's positive or what to do about the situation we're in. A lot of people talked about a values shift and Mm. the need to return to or recover or reinstate certain values. And Mm. at the time, I think I was also thinking about what it means to be progressive and what progressive values are. And I wanted to Mm. find fresh ways of articulating that. And yeah, I, I, I think I wrote a longer list of values and then tried to boil those down to three so those three care community and creativity and yeah one theme especially at that time and this was kind of the end of the national government so 2015 16 17 there was this sense of a loss of values but some people talked of you know that that going back further and in particular mm. i guess a yeah a loss of a sense of community um mm. a loss of care and can be traced back to different things yeah we might talk about like an emptying out of those values or uh, instead a substituting of like more individualistic values and yeah that was something that mm. lots of people talked about sort of a, a rise of individualism of market-driven profit-focused exploitation and so yeah that was a kind of anchor in the book was mm. that we need to kind of come back to these values and one thing that was key was that they seem to be values that Maori activists and thinkers uh, have have written about in, in related terms, mm. and also the language of values was something that you know Moana Jackson used, and that the Matika Mai report that mm. Moana Jackson worked on referred to. And so this seemed to be um, a, a way of talking about positive change that drew on the best traditions in this country. And yeah, 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 cool. And you also talk in there about uh, the role of the government and I like your framing of of redistribution, regulation and steering. And I think uh, I've just got a sense lately of a lot of people just losing faith in the government and the political process and it just seems to be quite a lot of hopelessness mm. and also reluctance to trust the government to actually solve any problems Mm, mm. and I just wondered what yeah how do you respond to that yeah there's a lot of points in there like on (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. the approach to the economy but also lack of trust so where to start yeah maybe just to start with your last question Mm. I mean yeah I think this is something that I've been interested in since writing the book as well that one big barrier to change is people's belief that change isn't possible Mm. and this has been written about a lot one one book that had an impact on me and and I think on a lot of other people was Mark Fisher's book Capitalist Realism Mm. which talks about how one feature of capitalism is that it shrinks the sense of possibility and one line that I think is quoted in that book that's often quoted from Frederick Jamison who says it's easier to imagine the end of uh, capitalism yeah. the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism yeah it's this idea that it's an aspect of our like political and economic order that we 
we just don't think it's possible to do anything differently. Mm. Sorry, I just sort of like restated the problem there. So I think that yeah, comes from okay. lots of that comes from lots of forces. I do think that economic order that we have has tried to take off the table certain issues like I mean food prices is an interesting example because I think that's come back onto the table like in recent months but you mm. know there are certain things that have just been seen as like not sites of um kind of political debate or and so I think that is yeah and that's to do with legislation and policy shifts yeah there's lots that's behind that and then we could talk about kind of what we can do to um to re-establish like that change yeah. is possible but so, I definitely believe it's possible so what yeah. like you talk about debates being taken off the table yeah, yeah. How, how did that happen um well it's like a very that's a very big question yeah yeah <laughs> and I guess it could sound really superficial on my part if I try and give one big answer so mm. um maybe an example yeah there's a sort of there are sort of high level examples like alternatives to capitalism being taken off the table like mm-hmm. uh, but then there are more specific examples like yeah the idea of public ownership for example and mm-hmm. some of the key goods and services that we have being being publicly owned rather than being owned and distributed um, by private sector actors mm-hmm. I think in, in a few areas like broadband or energy it's yeah not in Aotearoa, as, as yeah, as an option, and I think actually that's an example where I think it's not far from the table. Like it's still being, yeah, I see. it's mm. still being suggested by unions and others that we think about public ownership. But I think just to be a bit more specific, it's been taken off the table by by privatizing things, which happened in the mm. eight, in the nineteen eighties. So what is described as like Rogernomics or Ruthanasia was where <laughs> yeah. you know lots of things happened, but among the things that happened were some of these things that were publicly owned, including banks and Ministry of Works and insurance companies and other things were, were sold off to the market. And then mm. the market rules were loosened and there was deregulation and tax progressive taxes were cut, benefits were cut and yeah, one thing that did was, so it, it, it pushed these things into the private sector, but then sometimes also made it yeah, more difficult for policy change to happen um, in the reverse. Got, got used to it and then doesn't, a bit like a ratchet. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. And um, there was a whole shift of power and resources and also people with a particular ideology who were in quite deliberate ways, I think, set up in, in sort of positions of power which normalized a certain view of the world and meant mm. that this other view of the world, for example, that the government can and should publicly own some things was seen as more fringe. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's not very specific, sorry, but hopefully that's it's okay. an example. No, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it creates a context. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what else were we talking about? <laughs> so you were also talking about, yeah, steering and uh, re- yep, distributing yep. and regulating. Mm. Maybe just to pick up on the steering part of that because... Mm. That came in part out of a conversation with a New Zealand economist called Robert Wade, who is in London. And his work is about how the government can play an important role in steering the economy. And that's one thing that I've done more work on since oh, the book. Okay. Yep. And this draws on the work of another economist called Mariana Matsukato. Oh, and, yep, yep. Um, just her work her. in books like The Entrepreneurial State. So she says that actually like a lot of the innovative, impressive things in our lives, like 
parts of the iPhone don't come from private sector innovation, even though that's the dominant language that like, mm. you know, innovative companies and CEOs like Elon Musk are unleashing dynamism. That's the dominant language. But she says mm. actually that all the key technologies in the iPhone, so like the touchscreen, the internet, GPS can be traced back to public funding, um, mm. US-based public funding in particular and one thing i've been interested in is new zealand public funding for major sectors and yeah how institutions like the development finance corporation which is like a a a national development bank how that actually steered the development say of the kiwi fruit industry or the tourism sector and so this was back in the 70s was it yeah that's one period that that people yeah cite around the DFC so yeah the the 70s and the 80s really Mm, mm. and yeah they trained up lots of young kind of skilled analysts and they made loans to kind of emerging sectors and Mm. wrote off those loans when export targets were met or regional development targets were met and anyway that's just an example where actually the public sector had a role in steering the economy that yeah, we have now yeah. and the success that we have now and so that was and one also thing. supporting enterprise till it gets yeah. gets going yeah. And, yeah. and then exactly and that's something that is shut down by people who want to see the government out of the economy in a certain way who say oh like the government can't pick winners and you know business knows best and mm, the private mm. sector is cheaper or better the challenges that private sector orthodoxy yeah, yeah. market orthodoxy yeah i um used to work for science organizations in the sort of area of physics and yeah. so that was quantum technology and nanotechnology yeah, yeah. and i don't think many people know but new zealand is world famous for quantum technology and photonics and there was always a fight for the funding which was mainly government funding but there's such a lot of potential in there to turn that knowledge into innovations but yeah. there wasn't that sense of let's back what we're good at and yeah and get this going that's really interesting and yeah i would love to learn more about that like the yeah like new zealand's history of quantum technology and, oh, yeah. and the government's yeah. role in it but yeah i think it's interesting because yeah we do have some crown research institutes and centers that possibly could be marshal together with like university knowledge of it better to to steer innovation so yeah one thing i wanted to say in the book is yeah that's a legitimate important role for government in the economy Mm, as mm. well as regulating so bringing back the role for really robust rules and also redistributing making sure that we transfer money and power and resources Um, that's weird that's Tax, tax comes in there, yeah, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like tax could do the re rebrand. Yeah, and that's something that lots of people have been talking about, I guess, mm. in the last few years. And yeah, Shamabil Jakub and I as well both wrote about this idea of tax as love, which was one stab, I guess, at, at sort of trying to present tax what, as something that say, say more about that. What do you mean yeah, by tax yeah. as love? So that was Shamabil's phrase and I guess the idea was that we should see tax as a contribution to society and that we should see it as a way to show that we like love our institutions and our societies yeah it was also something I supported and wrote about I think it was back in 2018 or 2019 um I think yeah since then I've also probably hopefully evolved in my thinking in that I think one challenge there is 
I think progressive tax is a major contribution to society mm. and is loved by. There are regressive taxes like GST. Ah, oh, yeah. You know, where um, when I say regressive, I mean that the, the burden of them tends to fall on on lower income people in a greater way, and so. Um, uh, is, is that what regressive and progressive, like? Yes. Can you define progressive? Because sure, sure. yeah, I guess in simplest terms. Progressive tax just means that those with broader shoulders should um, pay more by way mm. of tax. And usually the way that's determined is that more wealthy people will pay a higher percentage. So mm. with income tax, that's how the system works. Like mm. if you if you earn in a higher tax bracket, you pay income tax at a higher percentage. Uh, regressive means most simply yeah, that those in lower incomes might pay more, um, but often that occurs indirectly so for example when you have like a flat tax like gst see, but it yeah. ends up being that a bigger proportion of low-income people's spend is mm, on mm. gst than mm. higher income people mm. yeah, yeah. so um do you have a vision for tax um <laughs> you don't have to answer this yeah yeah i do and i was going to add that like people like tax justice aotearoa since then have been working on like a rebrand and a refresh and yeah i think Tax is a really important lever for sharing resources and ensuring we're all contributing according to our means mm. towards a better society. And um, yeah, so to me, it's about it's about chipping in, it's mm. about contribution, uh, it's about acknowledging also how institutions build us and we build mm. institutions. So like you know, it sort of acknowledges, I guess, the interconnected nature of life yeah totally totally exactly like you know publicly funded roads or publicly funded public transport helps us get around that's how mm. you got here today public hospitals keep us alive have kept me alive public education for many of us have helped us grow and learn and so we should contribute back yeah and because we can and where we can we should contribute back to keep building those institutions because those public services, as people like Kat Hobbs from this great group, we own it, have said are like some of the most beautiful things that humans have created. Free public hospitals, free schools. These are amazing human creations that make our lives better. Mm. Something I wanted to ask about is like one of my hopes with this project is kind of to make the invisible visible in terms of yeah. the economy because yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't known much about it and it's been like learning about how our e economy works is kind of like shining a light on the structure that I'm in but I mm. haven't known about it mm, or like mm. as if I'm a fish living in water and yeah. sort of like learning about the water yeah, yeah so if there was one thing that you would want everyone to know about this economy that we live in what would it be? Yeah, I think the way we talk about economics is really alienating for lots of people. And mm. I think we should all be able to talk about like the kind of economy we want. Or one way I like to talk about it is as political economy. And one helpful definition that someone once gave me of that is that that's just about power and resources. So yeah, okay. Or power and money. And I think everyone has like a feeling about how power should be exercised in their lives and they have often people have emotional reactions to money and so yeah one important thing i want people to know is that 
the economy is something that is created by humans. One way of seeing it is just how we create and make and share resources that we have. And it's okay for everyone to have an opinion on that. And when we say that we should share resources when we're on a camping trip in a particular way, like that in some ways is like an economic decision. Um, yeah, yeah. But often the way we talk about it is in terms of the economy as a whole and the decisions we make about how we share or allocate the resources we have, say for healthcare or, mm. or education. And I, yeah, I just think that more people should feel able to participate and and I think we'd have better discussions if we all felt that way. Yeah. I mean, do you have any any sense of how that could happen? Or how it is happening? Yeah, I think it's helpful for us to kind of reclaim economics as something that is political and not just technical. Uh, and uh, yeah. I think that that there has been a shift in that direction, also in like economics curricula over the last 10, 15 years, since mm. the global financial crisis especially. I think sort of general economics education helps with that, and I would love to see... Yeah, more organizations and groups doing open-ended classes on what political economy is. Mm. And I think we can get there also through having like more politicians, local and central level, and others who try to demystify economics mm. and speak about mm. it in clearer ways and make it accessible. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was quite interested before when you mentioned the DFC, the Development Finance Corporation. Yeah. And I just wondered if you could talk some more about, you said you've had some ideas ar around that and I wondered if you have a, a vision that sure. you could tell us about. Yeah, sure. I haven't done really sustained research into the DFC, but I did write a longish piece uh, based on a couple of interviews. And yeah, one interview was with the, the former head of the, the DFC. We spoke on the phone and yeah, what he said was that there actually has not been very much interest from politicians in what this big institution used to do in New Zealand and lots of other countries in the years since the 1980s around the world have set up national development banks or national mm. investment banks but New Zealand doesn't have one because we privatized we sold off the DFC and so one vision I have is that we yeah create a fresh a national investment bank or mm. a national development bank we could call it the development finance initiative or development finance corporation if we wanted I think a key thing would be having really ambitious focus areas like mm, mm. like kind of like missions yeah like missions exactly um so you know you could frame it in terms of kind of uh, climate or environmental justice you could frame it in terms of productivity or social innovation you could frame these in terms of regional development those are mm. some quite common focus areas or missions yeah so how do you imagine that working what sort of thing would it enable to happen yeah so it would require the government to give up some capital to help get it started so some money and then it would require a structure in place and some expertise to be brought in possibly from the private sector and yeah to have a clear sense of purpose but what it could do is help to nurture and develop some key new productive sectors and it might be we don't even know now like what kinds of sectors that could be that, that could emerge out of that but yeah we've talked for years about like upgrading our economy like adding mm. more value and I think this is a key institution that could help with that uh, I think what would, it would also take would be yeah a willingness for the government to take some risks and to fail sometimes mm. um, because all the people that have written about this say that actually 
government investments do sometimes fail. And yeah, and new things fail. Yeah, exactly. And that's how life works. And we try our hands at things individually and collectively and some things come off and some things don't. And yeah, so I am trying to pull some people together to do some more policy work on this. Mm. And so hopefully... I will do some more work on it, but that's yeah, cool. kind of what we have in mind. Yeah. yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. I wonder if we could talk about climate change and yeah. in relation to what you've been talking about, like, yeah, with climate change hitting us more strongly with things like Cyclone Gabriel and storms and floods, why do you think it's important that we take this approach you're suggesting of giving the government more ability to steer and to redistribute and all that. Yeah, yeah. a couple of reasons. So one is that I think that a major driver of climate change or global boiling, as some people have called us to talk about, and there are other ways of framing it, like lots of Maori and Maori activists and writers have said you know maybe climate change is narrow and in, in how it kind of identifies the problem but that to one mm, side yeah. i think one of the drivers of our environment not being in balance is uh actually a quite a small number of large corporations and the profit motive which mm. has meant that yeah our planet has been ravaged there's been massive pollution uh in the pursuit of more profit and so what i think is required is a real reckoning with actually just a, quite a small number of those corporations and a, a tackling of the root causes. The government has powers to regulate or also to shrink markets. And so, yeah, I guess to put it simply, like the, the problem is the profit motive and the government is, I think, one of the only actors or maybe the only actor with mm. the power to to tame that and um i also think the government has some features or, or the public sector has some features which mean it can be part of the solution and i don't want to romanticize the government the government's governments are not perfect and the way they operate for lots of reasons isn't flawless but governments can achieve kind of economies of scale mm. which can be used to support like renewable energy projects that are part of the solution mm. um the government can integrate action across different areas so you know it's made up of like the education sector, the health sector and other areas. And that means that it's easier not to work in silos, but to think about kind mm. of coordination. Mm. Uh, government can also borrow more cheaply. This is actually a really important fact that isn't mentioned enough, I think. Oh, the government right. borrows yeah. at lower interest rates. Yeah. So that means if you need like big investment to change, you know, the, the energy mix, actually the government mm. can do it more cheaply. Um, that's because the government can tax and so it gets lower interest rates because um, mm. there's a sense that, you know, it can always pay those back, mm. pay, pay, uh, pay debt back. So, yeah, those are some reasons why I, I think yeah. uh, a public uh, solution is, is, is part of it. You mentioned that the government could curb that profit motive. Yeah. How would the government do that? Yeah, so one answer would be to, like, bring more things back into the public sector. So things like... Yeah, public energy generation or yeah, publicly backed and funded renewable energy. Um, mm. So that means taking some things out of the market, saying some things are too important for the market. And yeah, saying, I see. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, that the government needs to be doing that investing. But also this could mean, you know, 
limits on you know what certain companies can do windfall taxes which mm. have been used around the world so oh, so okay. taxes on yeah. kind of super profits these are yep. all ways to kind of curb yeah, right. what's yep. being done in that pursuit of profit yeah. i was i was talking to someone the other day and they were really nervous about adding more taxes because they were worried that it was going to hit small businesses mm. mm-hmm. and I, I i mean i imagine there are ways to not do that yeah so um first of all like corporation tax is only a tax on profits so that's an important point to start with it's only a tax on companies doing well so if companies are not making profit they don't actually pay corporation tax but if you're really concerned about this you could have a more progressive company tax structure than what we currently Mm. have in New Zealand and in the UK at different times there's been a kind of small profits company tax rate Mm. and you, Mm. you could think about that where larger companies which you could measure by employees or Mm. through other measures pay a higher rate of company tax so yeah there are real policy solutions to that yeah Yeah. yeah. because you don't want to um sort of cripple a company that's got three people and they're making fifty thousand a year or something like that yeah no for sure for sure though you know maybe we also want to encourage not-for-profit endeavors and and Mm. organizations that are kind of running on a different track um Mm. but yeah i I absolutely see their possible reaction there and i think there are ways to yeah to deal with that yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. another topic i'd love to talk to you about is decolonization and you mentioned that in your book but also quite a lot of time has passed since then Mm. i just wondered what you've been thinking about decolonization yeah so i was really inspired to write about decolonization by a couple of things yeah one was i was part of a campaign in the uk called roads must fall which was initially focused on changing big statues of colonizing figures but Mm -hmm. also changing the curricula at universities uh changing public debate and it was inspired by south african activists actually Mm. and yeah decolonization was kind of central to those campaigns Mm. but i was also inspired about the topic in general by like going to this primary school, Clyde Key, which had a, a Māori principal, really strong sense of Māori tanga and, and understanding of New Zealand history. And then by Moana Jackson and knowing Moana and interviewing him. And yeah, he worked on with, with a group of rangatahi, with Margaret Mutu and others, this amazing report called Matike Mai. Mm. It's online if anyone's interested in reading it. Mm. it talks about key values for a different kind of political structure in New mm. Zealand based on Hifakaputanga, the Declaration of Independence that came before the Treaty of Waitangi. Right, yeah. And then also based on the Te Tiriti o Waitangi. So it's very values-centered, that mm. report, but it also talks about a, some different models for how our politics might look like mm. with different spheres that are connected to the treaty. So, yeah, one model is like having a kawanatanga sphere or a crown government sphere and then having a tenoranga teratanga sphere. Tenoranga teratanga is what's in Article 2 of the treaty. As people might know, you know, it's um, kind of absolute authority for Māori. And then having a relational sphere or a relationship mm. sphere between the crown and Māori or between tangata tirati and Māori. Mm. And... Um, Anyway, I was inspired mm. by all of that. <laughs> the, mm. the, what I say decolonization is in the book is something like understanding and undoing the negative effects of colonization and mm. recentering indigenous power. And yeah, my thinking I think has evolved a little bit since then. I think at the time there was quite a lot of talk of like decolonizing of the mind, but a lot yeah. of writers have actually been saying for some time that decolonization is is centrally about like land and resources too so it Mm. has to it's not just about kind of 
centering narratives or centering indigenous or maori ideas it's also about actually land back and money back Mm. so that's one thing that i think is really important and that has been pushed in recent years and then another thing that moana also wrote about is that maybe a more positive framing is valuable and one has recently written about an ethic of restoration in mm. New Zealand and um, whether that might be better to talk about rather than decolonization. Mm. Um, so, and what yeah. do you feel excited about with that? I think lots of parts of that. I think more and more knowledge is being shared about the sophisticated systems that Māori had in place before settlers came to Aotearoa. Mm. So I think, you know, most people have some sense of like the value system in Te Ao Māori and, you know, values like manakitanga, sometimes translated as care, aroha, sometimes translated as love. Mm. But actually, we're also, it's also being shared more with the rest of the country that there was a sophisticated legal system, mm. that there was oh, a right, sophisticated yeah. economy. Mm. So people have talked about kind of the economy of mana. Mm-hmm. Um, sophisticated tax system as part of that um interesting work being done by matt scobie and others in canterbury on that and i'm excited because i think um that is one uh set of alternatives to the current economic model that i think is really attractive and Mm. is rooted in this place Mm. and i think is very empowering and involves Mm. kind of treating people and planet or in the right way um so that's one reason I'm excited. I think another reason I'm excited is that um, a lot of the most um, interesting creative activism in Aotearoa right now, mm. I think, is happening in Māori and, and Pacifica or non-Pākehā spaces in and around these ideas. And so I think being close to these ideas um, can bring anyone like into a very exciting space of like mm. new thinking. Because um, mm. it, yeah, it challenges foundations that have been so Mm. um there Mm. all Mm. our lives and that feels exciting to just have a new possibility of how we operate yeah absolutely and yeah especially for Pākehā that sense of like yeah these this is the as you said earlier like the invisible systems like property or the individual or the market or profit Mm. um and yeah the idea of restoring a different kind of order is threatening to some people because also Mm. maybe threatening in particular to to those who stand to lose their power that might Mm. not have always been justly acquired but i think it also offers a lot of promise and excitement there's a nice line in discussions of racism from the the writer fred moton i think who said about white supremacy he said to white Americans, this shit is killing you too, however much more softly. Mm. And I think there's something relevant there that, Mm. you know, the system is also not working for Pākehā, even if Pākehā have benefited hugely from colonisation. And Mm. it's actually in all of our interests to move towards a different kind of model. Mm. Matika Mai kind of sketches what that model might look like. That's cool. I'd like to read that. I'll Mm. go and read it. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I guess I sent sometimes that as Pākehā, there's an um, uneasiness or a lot of, like a mixture of shame and guilt and also threat and, and interest, but mm. fear. It, it's just, and so I'm interested in how you stand as a white man mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, and how you stand with dignity in this space. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um 
you're right. There's a lot of, there's a range of emotions. Um, sometimes I think a collective sense of something close to guilt that is more like responsibility isn't mm. so bad. Like yeah. that people, that people have some sense that like wrong was done and that, but I've also heard lots of Māori say, you know, it's, it's not really helpful to have lots of Pākehā kind of turning inwards and just kind of, yeah, you know, f- feeling... Shrinking. So yeah, shrinking and not kind of taking responsibility to do something differently. Mm, and, mm. Um, uh, you know, r- racism is not a Māori problem. It's a, it's a problem that has been created you know by systems of Mm. of white supremacy and so i think pakia have a particular responsibility to Mm. change that and yeah in terms of how i stand on that you know as someone who's definitely pakia i can definitely see that my family has benefited from colonization i think learning about that more is helpful and so yeah my family has like links to australia and also i think south africa as well as new zealand like lots of pakia families but i think what is also helpful for me is like finding footholds in my family past that are more inspiring Mm. and offer like a different way forward they're not ways to pretend that i'm like innocent or ways to like Mm. absolve me of playing part some part in that system but they're yeah sort of like footholds towards like a different future and so yeah my auntie for example yeah is like a really amazing political person who's like oh, involved cool. with a lot of kind of activist struggles Who, in the 60s that, and 70s she's actually in the uk yeah. but yeah her name's jane and she's yeah really inspiring person and oh, cool. uh, yeah she was involved with lots of like film work creative work mm. and so for me yeah finding those people whose example you want to follow can help you to be yeah sort of rooted in your identity without like um, you know, absolving yourself of any responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that sounds good. Um, do you have any hope for? I love what you say about the Maori econ- economics, and um, I love what you say about there being a hope of finding a way of doing things that is rooted in this place. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any sense that that could be possible, or that that could be even starting to happen? Yeah, I think it is already starting to happen. And I think like Māori would say, you know, it's always been happening differently here. And then it's yeah. just been suppressed and marginalised and not given attention. But yeah, I think there's lots of examples. You know, some would point to like Tūhoi. Mm-hmm. Some would point to like Kahunganu. Um, uh, there's, you know, different iwi. In terms of the iwi enterprise or or more... Like yeah, what different can you give local some? projects? So yeah. yeah, like social projects mm. in Kahunganu around like alternatives to criminal justice. Tuhoi, lots of people with different views, and there are others who are more expert on this. But you know, the example that is often given attention is is um, the Uruwera area, like having its own legal personality, mm-hmm. or the Huanganui River, um, having its own legal personality. But actually, locally, I think like Iwi and Hapu are doing all sorts of interesting work yeah there's there's things like bioremediation happening at the local level and they have plenty yeah all sorts of examples where i guess a different economy is like being lived out and a Mm. different social and political system is continuing to be kind of seeded so yeah definitely i think um these alternatives are being developed yeah, yeah partly the question is um yeah how do we as with access to media or 
um, other spaces, you know, amplify these efforts, mm. support these efforts, build relationships, mm. show solidarity, all of that. Yeah, yeah, and can we change the way we do um, economic exchanges? And like, can we be inspired or influenced? And can that activity expand? Yeah, I think so. And so part of that, I think, answer is like really supporting tino rangatirasanga, or like mm. Maori authority, like within a particular sphere, and mm. really insisting on that and defending things like the Maori Health Authority, which might not be a like perfect realisation of that, but, but really defending to other Pākehā these institutions of Maori authority. But then there's also, yeah, in our spheres, I think there's a role for transforming the economy. And I mm. think that means... Um, yeah, thinking about where we can limit and shrink the role of markets in our lives and the role of market values and replacing market institutions with other institutions not driven by profit. Mm. Um, people have successfully won battles along those lines and governments at different times have, for example, here bought back the rail network from the private mm. sector and that won't happen without a struggle and a push for these things. Um, mm. And that's a fight that you're in? Yep, yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I work at Action Station some of the week on campaigns, and that's partly because I think campaigns are really important in the way mm, we shift mm. government and that government won't move without pressure from the outside, although mm. inside work is really crucial too. I also try to get involved with writing that can support this mm -hmm. and policy work and legal work that supports mm -hmm. these aims. And I mm. do think we have to kind of fight the battle on lots of fronts, and I've only got skills on some of those fronts, but I think... The challenge is, yeah, like working together with others to strengthen yeah. that fight. Yeah. And uh, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? Like, do you have a big vision? I'd be here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really happy <laughs> with living what your I'm best doing. Life. Yeah, I feel really lucky. Mm. Um, mm. I would really like to live lots of years. So yeah. um, being healthy is important um mm -hmm. and so yeah i just hope for good health but other than that yeah you obviously i would want kind of some of these movements to be even bigger than they are now and, mm. and what, even more well supported and to have even more good people in and around government to respond to this pressure and then networks around the world who can support each other towards this different kind of change mm. and across governments and across communities but yeah i'm really mm. happy with what i'm able to do what are you up against um yeah people that you know will react to all of this who will like caricature your arguments this happens all the time and i'm into something i like wrote last week mm -hmm. um people that will attack you say all sorts of things about who you are but but you know we'll say different things and it's much worse for women of color and maori women in particular um because that they have to face yeah a lot more racism and, and sexism and other oppression that i don't have to face but yeah that mm. um you're up against those kinds of attacks you're up against the fact that this whole system has normalized a particular mm. way of being and so you're up against cynicism um mm. yeah you're up against the sense sometimes of like being on the back foot or or not having the numbers yet to kind of win this fight um mm. And I think it is good to think about what you're up against and what the what the opposition is planning and what like the defenders <laughs> of the status quo yeah. are saying. I think it's important to track that. Mm. Uh, but I think we can we can win this. And I think also the struggle is ongoing. You know, mm. Kafafa Tonumato is the 
the holy phrase and the name of the Ranganui Walker book that like struggle is without end and you know mm-hmm. we build a better society but I'm sure we find ways to improve that society yeah then. what would what would help a bolder government because I think a bolder government would also empower some of the groups that we need to build up I think that would help still has to be like a progressive government some progressive infrastructure like that we don't have in New Zealand, like stronger progressive think tanks, maybe some stronger progressive media institutions, um, maybe some more strategic litigation centres where lawyers can support the cause. Uh, yep, yep. And then just having all of those forces connected up yeah, and in yeah. conversation. Mm. A stronger understanding of like Mati Kemai and Tetsuya Waitangi across the board so mm. that we know our own lanes and can work together well. Mm. Yeah, a stronger understanding of like racism and anti-racism and gender and um, and a lot of the other forces of oppression that are still with us and still can kind of splinter our movements. Yeah, those yeah, are some cool. of the things we need. Yeah, mm. yeah. My last question is if you um, imagine that you're 80 years old and sitting in your favourite chair, mm. thinking mm. about your life, what do you feel most proud of? don't think I will live till I'm 80, unfortunately, but uh, I would like to get yeah. close. And I think I would be proud of, yeah, collective success. Yeah, I think some of the things I, I'm proud of already are, like, working with Just Speak, which was this criminal justice group that a group of us set up, mm. or being involved in a small way in Roads Must Fall, Mm. or pushing back against Auckland Council cuts more recently, like these collective Mm. battles we fight Mm. and relationships that you build along the way. I really enjoyed working, we haven't really talked about this, but in the UK Labour Party at a time when that party was far more radical and Mm. we, I think, helped to like mainstream some big ideas and, uh, yeah, be open to working more with like political parties who were interested in those big ideas um but yeah really it's like people i suppose like yeah yeah, like being inspired by people learning from those people hopefully learning from your own mistakes and learning yourself as you go and building a better community that sounds a bit cheesy i know no but but i do believe the truth is often cheesy yeah yeah Yeah, it sounds good yeah well that's that's it cool (laughs) awesome the show is also available as a podcast at thegoodenergyproject.substack.com.